Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Indie Filmopolis. I'm Mike Bourne, an actor and producer. And I'm Philip Pure, writer and director. And this is a brand new podcast about our endeavours in trying to make low and no budget indie films. Uh, we'll also include a lot of our thoughts, reviews and general love for other independently made films. Some you may know very well and some not so much. So our initial motivation for wanting to do this podcast is for our amazing and very patient Indiegogo supporters who very generously backed our feature film and West Enemy about five years ago. It's been a it's It's been been a while. Yeah. So this is mostly going out to you. Hello. Uh, Thanks for your patience. Really, we wanted to do a more personalised update for you guys because every month we've been trying to put out a written update on Indiegogo, but. All I've been able to say, because we're in the throes of post-production, is, well, we're We're still still editing, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I hope these podcasts will keep you more up to date with what we're doing, and um, to also let you know that we're thinking about you, and we want to give you as much info and background to own Worst Enemy as possible, Uh, because we really do appreciate your support and uh, patience, Mm -hmm. but also, if you're a fan of indie film and indie filmmaking, and you've stumbled across this podcast... Hello to you as well. Hello. Hopefully we'll be able to give you some interesting insights into how we made a very low budget feature mm-hmm. as well as some interesting discussions about other indie films uh, that we like or and <laughs> dislike. Yeah. Hopefully you've heard of them, hopefully some of you won't. Yeah, if you don't know them then great, they might yeah. inspire you, you to could. check them out. Uh, so we're going to go and try and have a loose theme with uh, each of these podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, to begin with, we're going to start talking about the making of uh, Unworst Enemy. Uh, we're going to go through from there from the first conception of the film right through to pre-production, filming pickups, post-production, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then once we get it to the festival circuit, we'll be able to offer up our experiences of screening our film to an audience as well. So yeah, this first episode, we're going to concentrate on the conception of Own West Enemy and the writing process of the script. Um, and then later on, like Mike said, we'll have a theme for each one so we'll, we'll talk about some of our favourite indie scripts and some of the ones that we maybe don't like so much or we're a bit kind of disappointed by um, but before we jump into all of that Mike for those who may not know what's Own West Enemy all about? Yes for those uh, just joining and not quite aware of uh, the film that we're making Own West Enemy is a British made mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, pitch black comedy written and directed by Phil here. It's about uh, a very strange individual called uh, Andy and a figment of his imagination, Mr. P. Uh, who you play? Lo- who I play, both, both of them. Uh, both stuck in Andy's house. Mm-hmm. Andy's very housebound. Uh, he's got a very 70s feel. He doesn't seem <laughs> to see yeah. much of the world. And um, it's his. He's, he's in there with reasons of his own making yeah. because of the agoraphobic nature of his of his place it highlights his paranoia and delusions mm-hmm. thrown into the mix he has to contend with a, a very sort of chubby helm helper called Perry yeah. played by the Australian actor Matthew Waters who does a great company oh he does a very good company uh, the TV weather person played by Terry Dwyer mm-hmm who Andy believes is deliberately predicting bad weather to get at him because he's got a leaky roof. Mm. And of course he can't leave a house to fix the leaky roof because of all these issues. We should have done a scene with him trying to get on the roof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, health and safety wouldn't... <laughs> well, yeah, you wouldn't leave health and safety. But uh, Andy's main problem is his 
<laughs> own worst enemy, mm-hmm. Mr. P, his imaginary friend. And Mr. P's imaginary friend, Paul, so and his imaginary friend has another imaginary friend, and both of these imaginary friends hate him. Yeah. And do whatever they can do to turn his life into a horror movie of some mm. sort. And they're quite emphatic that they're not his friend. Oh, yes, yes, despite the fact we've used imaginary friend to describe yeah. them. Um, we have a nice few cameos as well, including from uh, Big Joe Egan uh, of the mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes film Fames, fame, and uh, James and Oliver Phelps, uh, who are better known as the Weasley twins from the Harry Potter films. Mm-hmm. Um, the main film it's safe, uh, <laughs> as you can imagine, pretty much takes place all indoors. Mm-hmm. Uh, in one central location that we were lucky enough to find and was made for, what would you say, less than 20, 25,000 pounds? Yeah. In total? Ultra low. Excellent. Budget, yeah. yeah, it's a big, it's a nice low budget indie all the way through. Uh, we filmed Almost Enemy, it, yeah, it's five years ago now. Yeah. Um, but before we get into the process of the, the conception of the film and things like that, it's probably best to update people with the current progress of Almost Enemy and why it's still in... Uh, post-production obviously we, we never thought it was going to take this long i think probably but we were hoping 18 months down the line we would have a finished would have a finished film but uh, a, a lot of the reasons why it's taken so long is we had a, a huge amount of footage uh from this year much more than is kind of reasonable for a, a film of this budget um probably for any sort of indie film really a big part of the reasons why we ended up with so much footage was 70 to 75 percent of the film is you Acting against you, um, and when you're doing that, there's no shortcuts. Um, there's it, like usually when you're making a any kind of film, but even particularly an indie film, if you've got like a, a short one, two minute scene with two people and it's just a conversation, you'd you'd f- find a way to stage that. You'd probably try and do a two shot or a wide shot, get the scene done, do a little bit of coverage, move on. With almost enemy, we had no choice but to do a lot of coverage because. Obviously, we had to do Mike's side of the conversation several times, and then the other side. There was no, there was no scenes within that sort of seventy to seventy-five percent of Mike acting against Mike, where we could just go, okay, we've got half an hour to shoot this scene. Let's just set up a two-shot, knock it out of the park, move on. We just, we just didn't have that luxury, I guess. Um, which I guess we we kind of knew would gonna ha- was gonna happen, but Mr. P is a very Within the script, within the film, he's a very dominant character. Yeah, and and is a character I'm, I quite find quite, in compared to other characters, yeah. a little easier to play. Sure, yeah. Andy, on the other hand. Yeah, um, and so it wasn't just a case of Andy being more of a kind of a distinct character for you. It was also the fact that if we'd done, say, um, Mr. P's side of the conversation for two or three scenes, which which is what we do, we'd if we had like a similar setup. Um, for two or three scenes, so Mr. P on the couch, mm-hmm. we'd film three scenes, Mr. P's side, yeah. all at once. And then we'd go and do Andy's scenes, say he was standing in the doorway, perhaps. So if, if Mike's been Mr. P all morning, <laughs> like I said, he's a very dominant character within the film, but also what happened was in real life, he sort of um, possessed Mike in a way, well, and it was really difficult. It took a while to sort of exercise Mr. P, P out of out. out of Mike's performance to get uh, Andy. Yeah, so like you said, so we'd have like a normal amount of takes for Mr. P, say two or three. With Andy, we'd have anywhere from ten to twelve takes, just because we we're trying to get to Andy. So 
getting that back into the edit, that took a lot of time to get through Andy's side of the stuff. So, um, um, with that in mind, roughly how much uh, footage uh, would a normal indie film have? Um, if an indie film was doing it just one person quick conversation, one minute out there, and then done, like you said, mm -hmm. roughly how much footage would a normal indie film be if it was that sort of concept so, for them to edit? For yeah. like, say, a, a one and a half hour film, roughly how much footage? Well, like I say, I mean, if, if we did this film, the same film, and you played one of the characters and we had someone else playing the other character, we'd set up a lot of those yeah. scenes as a two-shot or a wide shot, film it, get make sure we've got a clean take of it, do a little bit of coverage if we needed it, maybe one or two takes just so we could cut in on a close-up. So you're looking at maybe getting about 15 minutes worth of footage yeah. and you can cut that down to get to one minute. Mm -hmm. So for scenes with Andy and Mr P... If you were to get a one-minute scene, roughly how long would you, how much footage are you having to go through? Are you looking about half an hour or in excess? Yeah, in sometimes. excess. Okay. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons, rather than having about fifteen minutes worth of footage to look through, mm -hmm. and down, you've got maybe forty-five to an hour's yeah. worth of footage, and you've got even obviously more than to absolutely to come um, across. So that's like I said, like any other film. That you watch you wouldn't normally cut every single time there was a, an exchange i mean sometimes you, you'd yeah. see that but um normally there might be you know you stay on a two shot for two or three lines cut to a close-up cut to a close-up back to the two shot for a few more lines with almost enemy in the editing we had absolutely no it, there was no way to do it other than every single exchange to cut between mike i'm oh, sorry andy and mr p um so Again, that's a, an added kind of um, time involvement. That that's another reason why it's taking so long to build up these scenes. Um, another thing is when we're constructing these scenes in the edit. Yeah. Because these scenes never existed before. If that makes sense, like when you do like a normal film. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. So you got you got uh, you know you will have experienced this. You've got um, two or three actors. Yeah. You rehearse the scene. You know all the beats, you know what the chemistry is, you know what the dynamic is, you know what the pacing is, you know what the timing is. Yeah. Um, and so you'll have, at the very least, a couple of guide shots when you're back in the edit so that you know what that scene's supposed to be like. Yeah. With Almost Enemy, because Mike had never acted with Mike, we didn't, we hadn't, we didn't have any guide shots, any guide um, scenes or anything. They were never kind of rehearsed in that way. We re obviously rehearsed the script but we never rehearsed it to the point where we knew what the, the timings were and the pacing and everything like that. So when we got it back to the edit, it wasn't just a case of finding the right performances. It was also a case of working out every single line, what the timing of that was, what the pace of the scene was. We had some help on that, though, because we had other people coming in and, uh, say, during a scene I would be playing Andy, you'd have another actor who was there at the time reading off playing Mr P. So that was to help give you cues. Yeah. But in terms of the timing of the script, that didn't help at all because we weren't able to have you overlap in any way with the person reading the script. Because the sound guys would say, don't overlap. Yeah. So like normally, like if me and you were talking yeah. in a scene, we'd be talking over each other. Yeah, we'd we're be, talking like this. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We couldn't do that. With when we were shooting, so even though we had people 
acting against you feeding you the lines in terms of the timing and the pacing and stuff that wasn't there interesting side point about when we're doing that their interpretation of the scene wasn't necessarily your interpretation of the other side of the scene as well so even when we were running through and we had someone else doing the other character we still didn't know how the scene was going to be because the person being Andy at that point wasn't Mike's Andy and the person being Mr P when Mike was Andy wasn't um, Mike's version of it's, Mr. It's P. one of your favourite bits uh, when we had a lovely gentleman come on mm-hmm. board, Ivor. Big shout out to Ivor. Yes, Ivor. Um, who um, read in for um, Mr. P at one point. Mm-hmm. And there's Andy being all um, submissive. And I think uh, Mr. P at one point goes something like, oh, fuck you. You know, mm-hmm. aggressive. But of course, there's Ivor and he's going, oh, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think my, quite interesting to play up emotionally. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think my my favourite line of his was um, when he called um, Andy a selfish twat. It's just that in in um, in Ivor's voice that was uh, you selfish twat. Yes, it was pretty much like that. Whereas Mister P would be like oh, you selfish twat. Um, so there is a sort of another version of um, a lot of these scenes where we could probably cut together Ivor's side of the conversation. Oh yeah, definitely. Just uh, do with Ivor's. Yeah, voice. we might do that for a laugh <laughs> at some point. <laughs> Obviously, that's not a priority. We want to get the actual film done. But um, so yeah, like I said, there, there wasn't ever a point with um, the Andy and Mr. P scenes where we knew until these scenes started to go together in the edit what the dynamic or the, the scenes were going to be like. So that was an additional challenge while editing that you wouldn't normally have. It's probably one of our better scenes was um, in the film right at the start. It's the conversations I had with Matt Waters who played yeah. Perry because we went through the whole rehearsal process and fed off each other. And uh... Absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, that's certainly like my favourite to to edit because um, it, was, <laughs> it, was, it was there yeah. um, compared to the others um, and of course we both work for you what else do you do during the day yeah I feel quite lucky that my day job is within um, film and TV and but unfortunately my day job is an editor so I spend my whole entire life in post-production so I, I edit commercial shorts promos feature documentaries um and being freelance, I might do that up to six days a week. So whenever I get any free time or the weekends and stuff, the thought of doing more editing is uh, its a little bit daunting. So it, it does take a lot of motivation on my part to, um, to yeah, do more editing. So that's, that's another reason why I set back. Let alone managing the time to edit this film, you also took the time to script it. Yes. So, um, talk about some of your influences uh, into, well, you as a filmmaker in, and your influences in making the script. My favourite period of filmmaking is the... Indie filmmaking. Indie filmmaking. Indie, well, no, filmmaking in general as oh, well. Oh, fair yeah. um, Is the early 90s uh, American indie filmmakers, when you had Quentin Tarantino coming out with Reservoir Dogs, Kevin Smith with Clerks... Uh, Robert Rodriguez with El Marachi, Richard Linklater with Slacker. I've always been really inspired by um, low-budget filmmakers, and filmmakers that just kind of want to work outside the box, really. So me and you made a film back in... Well, it was released in 2009, called One Minutes. That's how we met. Yes. Um, 
and again that was another exhausting experience and after we'd finished just meeting (laughs) (laughs) after um after we'd finished that i didn't really want to do another film pretty much ever we did a few shorts here and there but i didn't really have a much of an interest in doing another feature project uh, one minute is a whole new film experience which we may cover on a podcast sometime in the future. I hope we do, yeah. But um, if you were struggling for motivation, what, what brought you back to wanting to make a West Enemy? Well, like I said, I'm really inspired by people, low-budget filmmakers, who just take it upon themselves to, to make a film against, against the odds. Whatever they can get their hands on to make a film, do it. I look beyond the, sort of the rough edges of a film. It's not so important to me to have a really glossy film um just the the concept of the film the idea of the film the you know the behind the scenes knowing that people have just you know got what they can together to make it i love all that kind of thing um and so just by chance i think i stumbled across um this british filmmaker called mike henry who i think this was his third feature-length film um which he'd made for 500 pound and he was promoting it on twitter he was releasing the dvd of it so I, i bought a copy of him and it was really good. It didn't look like a million pound movie, but it certainly <laughs> didn't look like a five hundred pound movie. And I just kind of thought, well, if he had five hundred pounds to make that film, what if we had say five thousand pounds? What could we do with that? So from that, I, I got more inspired to see if we'd do another film. I was also approaching thirty, so this was a kind of um, uh, <laughs> it was midlife crisis. Yeah, moment. yeah, yeah, sort of the end of the twenties. Like, oh god, okay, let's have, <laughs> let's have one more stab at this. So I was thinking back on old ideas that I had, and there was one that stuck out that was very that would work very well as a, a low budget indie film. Yeah. Um, which was the idea of this this man who was so crazy that his imaginary friend had an imaginary friend. That was the the basis of um, Home West Enemy and so I'd got like a very rough outline of what this film was but not it wasn't too clear um, but I'd also had when I was at uni I'd made obviously loads of short films and for me with the films I made at university was I really liked the ideas I thought the, the ideas were the best part but the films themselves weren't necessarily standout films they weren't the sort of films where I'd probably want to put them online but I still thought that there was something that could be salvaged from the ideas of those films one of those films was about a guy who was um, who had a leaky roof, yeah. and the weather woman was predicting bad weather, and he was convinced that it was all her fault. And she was deliberately predicting bad weather, and he had a voice in his head who told him that if he killed this weather woman, then the weather would change. And so, that was slightly different from what we did in *The Worst Enemy*. He does go out and he kills the weather woman, and lo and behold, yeah, the weather changes. <laughs> but it, it goes from one extreme to the other. Um, and then I did another film about, um, and this is so long ago, this is when sort of videos were being phased out in favour of DVD. Uh, middle ages. <laughs> yeah. So, but I was, you know, at the time I, I really, and I still think this, I think there's some, some films that should be watched on video, like um, Video Nasty's Evil Dead and that kind of film. I think, what's the point of watching that in high def with great sound? You, you know, you want to watch a rubbish quality version of... Um, of the you know films like The Evil Dead, certainly indie films lend themselves. Oh, absolutely, to absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the the idea within that film was these two guys were having an argument between what was better, to, um, DVD and video. And have we put this scene? Out? I think we might put this scene out where Andy strangles Perry. Yes, that's right. We have yes. 
um, with the videotype. So essentially that that's how the conflict between those two guys within the short film that I made resolved itself. So within like those three basic ideas, I kind of felt like the main character was the same sort of character. Yeah. Um, and so I just had, I just thought about trying to mesh those ideas together and they work surprisingly well. Um, I, I was working on it for a while, a few months here and there, and um, I think me and you went to see Prometheus. We did, yes. And I, I mentioned it to you then. You, you seemed a bit underwhelmed. By the whole yeah. Thing. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we almost uh, built ourselves up because it was obviously the pre Oh, no, I'm not talking about Prometheus. I'm talking about when I told you. <laughs> <laughs> so around uh, the October 2012, yeah. I'd got a 65-page script. I think it was about 65 pages, yeah. and um, that's when I gave it to you. Yeah, what, what did you think when you'd? Because it was it wasn't what it is. No, now no. It, the, the first act and the third act are exactly the same. The second act went through a lot of transformation. We'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah. But so so when you read it, when I sent it to you, what did you think when I said, "Can you do both of these roles?" <laughs> Straight away, I was like, "Okay." <laughs> that, that was that was generally what I thought. Um, uh, but I felt very privileged. You'd asked me. Uh, look, the first thing I was going through. Phil wants me to do both of these. Oh my God, Phil wants me to do... Yes, yes, I'd love to do. Before even reading the script. Yeah. But um, then when I got to reading the script, I just... I realised just how much of me was actually in this. Mm-hmm. And um, realised that uh, straight away I'm going to have to work, do a lot of work on this. And you you express that straight away. That um, one thing you want to do is get these two characters down you wanted yeah. them separated mm-hmm. you wanted them very distinctive um now mr p um um was i think the first one we worked on because he tended to be the easiest one he was yeah he was he's he, more your kind of go-to yeah character, yes yeah. not that i'm saying i play serious killers of that sort of very well i'm very nice person i stroke bunnies and stuff i'm known to just let's just get that out there anyway um so we but you wanted a, a very distinct um, difference between both him yeah. and Andy mm-hmm. and one of the things um, you specified I remember very much about Andy is um, now I'm six foot two yeah and for Mr. P that's ideal he's big he's got this towering uh, presence but for Andy he's almost the antithesis he has to feel be a very lowly very um, uh, very weak, somebody you can easily manipulate, and so we did that with the physical thing. You want yeah. me really to bend down, be really low, uh, speak to people from a very almost like a puppy looking up, yeah, with and a not begging even sort of eye contact. Yeah, eye contact was possible. Yeah, he, he could make eye. It'd be one of these people who could make eye contact from a, a corridor, but as he approached yeah. you, his eyes would go mm-hmm. further and further yeah. down to the floor, and looking at people. Um, I think one of the things we did straight uh, straight away was to rehearse and get the script um get the script into my head we did yeah so i think from that point we met up maybe once or twice a week or yeah. maybe other, every other week or something and we'd um to start with we'd just run through the script so i'd be andy and you'd be mr p so yeah. we'd run through the script as that and then we'd swap roles and run through the script again yeah, yeah. that whole kind of process of us rehearsing <clears throat> the script was really beneficial for me because it meant that we could um, sort of establish any kind of weak spots or bits that need to be tighter or longer. I think the the first act is pretty much as it was scripted at the very beginning and yeah. the same with the, the third act as well. 
um, and most of the second act. But the the second act, when we were kind of going through it, it became obvious it was very repetitive. Yeah, it it was the same thing kept happening over and over again. So there were two kind of major changes that um, we did. I think one of them is in a clip that we've put out, so I don't mind mentioning it. Um, okay. It's when um, Mr. P makes Andy believe that Andy is the imaginary friend. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was a nice kind of twist to begin with. So the other major change was... Um, Andy, sorry, Mr. P was always sort of getting one over on Andy, and I thought, well, it would be good if um, we gave Andy the chance to get one over on Mr. P for a change. And so once we did that, there's a nice big sort of 15-minute chunk that came out of that, which is it's probably my favourite bit of the script. It flows really well, it works really well. It's a good um, mixing up of that concept before we um, we hit the third act. That process of me and you going through the script was really helpful. It swelled from 65 pages yeah. to 110 pages, uh, which is, yeah, I probably should have known at that point. That was probably a bit too long for, <laughs> for an indie. I probably should have tried to get it down to 90. So you get copies of the script, not just to me, obviously. Mm-hmm. You gave it to other people. Why, why do something like that? But it, well, one of the things that I'm not interested in when I give people copies of scripts or my rough cuts of films and stuff, I'm not interested in people telling me it's oh, good or not person, yeah exactly. i don't i don't care that's not helpful um so there's two people who get all of my scripts all of the rough cuts of the films i send them to a lot of people but there's two people in particular paul barrow who's in the film shout out to paul and nusha amini um and those two i know that they'll give me honest feedback uh, good constructive uh criticism um and i won't necessarily always take their their thoughts but I, I know that um they're not you know going oh yeah that's really and if you've got two if if both of them come up with us uh, mm-hmm. a single thing about a certain line yeah a certain bit of the script you know that they're probably both talking the truth one of the other things we did as well in then um, is i think we mentioned it before we had a great rehearsal mm-hmm. uh, with matt who plays perry yeah yeah he was uh, really great he came from London for the day, yeah, came up to Birmingham right. to to meet. We hadn't met him before that, yeah. um, and he yeah we, we um, went through the he how many scenes has he got three or four yeah. scenes. So we went through all of his scenes, and it was really good um, to do that because, like I said before that, it would just been me and you rehearsing. I'm I'm not an actor, so um, to to see myself two people bouncing off each other with the script, it was it was great. It was nice. It was very fun. So I think that's enough from me going on about how and West Enemy was conceived and came about. Uh, next time, I guess, we'll talk about the pre-production, pre-production process. Yeah. Um, what about other indie scripts? What do you, what do you like? Scripts. Well, the, I mean, um, a particular indie film that I saw come out in the 90s, which uh, I thought was just amazing, was uh, Brian Singer's The Usual Suspects. Mm-hmm. came out in about... Uh, it was 1995, I believe. Yeah. Uh, premiered, well, it premiered at Sundance in mm-hmm. 95. Was also screened at Cannes, and if I remember correctly, the film also won two Oscars um, yeah. for best supporting actor and best screen, uh, best script, best screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, written by Christopher McQuarrie, who's yeah. also done, uh, been the writer on other films like uh, Valkyrie, Jack Reacher, Jack of the Giants, Slayer, Mission Impossible, mm-hmm. of course, Rogue Nation. He's even directed uh, Rogue Nation as well, yeah. and the Jack Reacher film. And like you said, he won an Oscar for this script. This, this put yeah. him on the map. Yeah, that, yeah definitely. Yeah. Apparently there's even been a, a Bollywood remake. Oh, God. Okay. Of, uh, yeah, yeah of, um, 
the usual suspects. If you ever get the chance, check it out. Check it out. Sorry, you'll, there'll be a reason for me saying that. Apparently, it's called Chocolate Deep Dark Secrets. It, it obviously does sound like a, a Bollywood porn film, but um, hmm. the Bollywood deep porn. <laughs> well, they do now. It's called Chocolate Deep Dark Secrets. <laughs> Try the salted caramel. So, what is what is about usual suspects that you like? What, what makes it a good script for you? Well, for me, um, one of the things I liked a lot about uh, a script is is the sense that uh, the, these characters seem very freeing in their conversations. Mm -hmm. um, there was no eulogising um, to camera or big. The, the big sort of things you see in a lot of budget films. I'm doing this for yeah. my family. Yeah, I'm yeah, doing yeah. it for yeah. love. I'm doing it mm -hmm. for the culture. No, there wasn't. Mm -hmm. There was a typical speak. There were there was lots of bouncing off each other. There didn't yeah. seem to be any general leader in in the group. Uh, so there was there was a definite edginess mm -hmm. to every part of this. Um, one of the other things I also liked about it is this was a crime film. Yeah. But it was about the criminals, mm -hmm. something you rarely saw at the mm -hmm. time. It was all about the uh, the uh, detective doing the solving of a lot of yeah. films. I mean, just before this, you had like Die Hard, the edgy cop, defeating mm -hmm. the bad guys, or Lethal Weapon, the edgy cop, mm -hmm. with the partner, defeating the bad guys. This time, it, it was about the bad guys. Yeah. To be fair, I think um, Tarantino probably got in there with Reservoir Dogs. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And um, he, he started that whole thing yeah. off. Brian Singer took that concept and turned it into a film noir yeah and really put a good mysterious edge on it you i mean it's this proper edge of the seat testing your mind and mm -hmm. i don't know of anyone who figured out the ending when they saw it and had to re-watch it to see if they'd been caught out mm -hmm. very very good yeah what's interesting re-watching it i think is um when you know that this is like a, a story that verbal kint is spinning yeah. you kind of wonder is any of this true? Like you know, the whole film that he's the whole story that he's telling the detective yeah. could just be complete nonsense. And then that's turned on its head again yeah. with the very last scene mm -hmm. where you see the lawyer turn up to yeah. collect him, mm -hmm. and then you think, well, he's got to have some part of it. But then yeah. what part was real, yeah. what part is not? Mm -hmm. Yes, the whole film could have been completely made up. Yeah, ironically, was. <laughs> For us to be scripted in such a way that you feel like you have to go back and rewatch it to justify it mm -hmm. is a great credit to the film. Absolutely. I guess the stand-up moments for people with the usual suspects is like the twist ending and things like that. Yeah. But is there anything kind of within there that sticks out for you? Yeah, um, one of the things I liked was his use of montage editing throughout the the film, mm -hmm. and one particular scene summed that up. The other idea of montage editing is that the audience feed their own ideas into the film, yeah, and uh, come up with the ideas. Uh, the classic one was. Uh, the scene itself shows a plane taking off, a jumbo mm -hmm. jet taking off from an airport. That's it. You don't get the name of the plane, you get the name of the airport. Just the plane taking off from the mm -hmm. airport. The sound in the background is uh, from Agent Kuyang yeah. leaving a voicemail on his phone saying, I will be out at the uh, out of the country at the time or I'll be out at home at the time. Please leave a message. At the state, yeah. By using montage editing, by editing these two together, the audience feed into the concept that Agent Kuyan is on this plane, mm -hmm. going somewhere. That is the belief that the audience create. Yet all that's happened is you've seen a plane taking off and a voicemail playing. Yeah. And for that, that is a 
excellent use of montage editing mm-hmm. and an excellent use of indie film budgeting. You yep. don't have to show the whole journey. You don't have to show where he's going. Mm-hmm. You just create these two very simple concepts and you've created something for the audience to latch on to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think if they had a bigger budget, yeah, you would have seen him stroll through the airport. Yeah, you'd have seen the name of the airport. Mm-hmm. You'd have seen Sitting him in his seat, class yeah. And got a concept of what Agent Coulion is mm-hmm. all about. Yeah. Here, didn't need that. Bang, one scene, it mm-hmm. took less than 15 seconds to see, and the audience had got the concept immediately. Great scene. So... That for me is, is is one of my films that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Um, Phil, can you give us a film? Yeah, sure. So we mentioned it uh, just before. Clerks. Uh, for me, Clerks is a, a really great example of a script uh, for a film written around what the director had access to, um, as opposed to writing a script and then having to find all those elements. So Kevin Smith, he he worked in this convenience store during the day, and he got permission from the the shop owner to film there during the night while it was closed and so he, uh, he he built that script around the convenience store and he hired his friends and he hired local actors and I think really the only thing that he would need to spend money on was stock film stock and um, equipment so yeah to me that's a really the, the quintessential low budget well no budget kind of filmmaking approach what have you got available let's write a script around that so yeah for that reason, I think it's great. And then on top of that, it, it's just a really kind of funny, warm f- script as well, I, I yeah. think. Yeah. So things which are very distinctive. Um, um, the, the lead character scribbling on the corrugated front, we are open, yeah. we can't open it because there's bubblegum stuck in the uh, thing. Do you know um, why that was? Again, this, this was written into the script because they were shooting at night. Yeah. And um, the shutters at the very front of the store would have shown because the whole film oh, takes yeah. place during the course of the day so the big chunk of it should have been daylight outside <laughs> so he had to have the shutters down the whole time yeah. so he wrote into the script that someone had jammed gum into the the locks on the shutters so they had to be down all day so there, there you go that was just a, another example of you know working around a, a problem but with a sort of a funny result as well because it's not you know you, you would never have thought it was just like the, yeah yeah and, and in a funny way as well yeah one of my favourite scenes which I've seen from it is when this um, this uh, lady walks into the store next door, which is the video yes. section mm-hmm. uh, where his friend works, mm-hmm. and she wants to order uh, a certain video. She's got a baby with her, and she yeah. wants to order a video. Yeah. And she has to, and he's on the phone. He says, "Yeah, yeah, sure, we order videos." And she goes, "I'd like to order something like Happy Scrappy Hero Pops or something." So, like yeah, that. something along those mm-hmm. lines. And he goes, "Yeah, sure." And um, as he's on the phone, he then continues his phone conversation. Hi, uh, this is blah, 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 film. I'd like to order. And then just reels off about eight or ten really explicit mm-hmm. pornographic <laughs> film titles. Yeah. And then right at the end he goes, oh yeah, and one more. Uh, what was it? <laughs> Does that yeah. Then, what for you is uh, one of your favourite scenes? Well, what I really like, I think it's sort of really overdone these days the sort of pop culture referencing oh, yeah. but way back in the the early 90s i think you know tarantino had a head start with his madonna speech in reservoir dogs and stuff uh, and you've got examples before stand by me them talking about um the cartoon characters and stuff like that but really there wasn't too much sort of like pop culture is a thing now and pop culture referencing back in the the early 90s there wasn't 
no. really that kind of thing. And it's just a, like a tribute to yeah. acknowledging something. Mm-hmm. And you've got things like Stranger Things, which references virtually everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but going back, your favourite scene. Yeah, so it's it's the the scene where um, they're talking about the construction workers on the death, the second Death Star and whether they were kind of innocent people who were, you know, a lot of people kind of reference Star Wars in a really obvious way, and I just thought this was really kind of funny just to kind of go really in depth into thinking about, um, you know, the lives of the construction workers of the the second Death Star and how you know they were innocent sort of bystanders as such, to, you know, being blown up. Um, one of the kind of weird things. Um, from that, you know, in um, Attack of the Clones, there's these sort of bug creatures that are sort of like, oh, big. yeah, it turns out in the film that these are the guys who um, drew up the plans for the original Death Star. Oh, yes, Which I is... remember you, you saw a, a scene at one point where he's you've got the blueprint, uh, yeah, of the Death Star in holographic form, mm-hmm. and it closes it down, yeah, yeah. and so on the audio commentary to um, Attack of the Clones, George Lucas is talking about um this and he's going oh yeah so as it turned out it was actually these bugs who came up with the the death star so um kevin smith and jane silent bob needn't worry about um (laughs) (laughs) is he serious did he actually like you know take serious concern from what he said in clerks and actually sort of change (laughs) so yeah so i think that's a one of my favorite scenes just because it's such a, a weird kind of take on star wars and it's just you know funny what about films Oh, that's good. Well, there, there was one, and I remember this for all different reasons. Um, when you asked me to try and think of indie films in particular that yeah. I can think have done really well, uh, one that immediately came to mind is uh, the film Boxing Helena. Also came out in the 90s. Yes. Very, very strange film. It, it was a film that only really... Uh, entered into people's consciousness and strikes any sort of interest with people was that uh, there was a massive lawsuit around it. It was mm-hmm. big news at the time. Uh, Kim Bassinger, who was due to play the female lead mm-hmm. in the film, pulled out just, uh, I think it was pre-production. Yeah. Right? Don't know the reasons why, mm-hmm. but the film <laughs> pretty much made its money back and then some by suing her oh, for nine million for dropping out as mm-hmm. early as she did. Um, how much was the budget of the film? Well, I'm not sure, but it certainly wasn't nine million. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the cast, the cast's not uh, not littered with stars even yeah. for the nineties. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've got Julian uh, Sands who plays the main male lead, mm-hmm. and of course Kim Basinger was supposed to be the other selling point. Yeah. So it was now taken by an unknown actress known as uh, Sherilyn Fenn. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were other actors in it, Bill Paxton, who had done bit parts during the nineties, especially yeah. Terminator, mm-hmm. Commando, things like that. But, I mean, they had Art Garfunkel, uh, as in Simon and Garfunkel, right. who played one of the, the doctors in it as well. So it wasn't uh, a hugely well-known cast. Mm-hmm. It didn't even get a UK cinema release here, because okay. it didn't do so well in America. Uh, but the idea of the film was that there was this doctor who was so obsessed with this, with this model that he'd met, Julian Sands played the doctor, um, in order to keep her and maintain her beauty, he's throughout the film um, removes her limbs, and because he's a doctor who's an expert at it, he, he starts off by removing arms and legs and and literally boxing Helena. Uh, yes, yes, it's it, it's a film that produces high hilarity amongst several people, but. Um, 
One of the other reasons I remember, and this was a scene from the film, um, I just remember, because there was so little action in it, and of course so little drama, mm-hmm. that about halfway through the film, she decide, she has an, a chance to escape yeah. the house that she's been kept in. And she hasn't got any arms at this point, so she's running through the house to the front door to try and get out. And the thing that struck me more than anything was... Why didn't he remove her legs first? If you want to keep someone and you plan to remove their limbs, remove the legs. Mm -hmm. He wanted Helena to become dependent on him. Mm -hmm. So remove the legs. And and, and you can virtually box her quite nicely Mm -hmm. and then remove the arms after that. But but it, it was that sort of film that just made you go, huh? But yeah, that, that was that was a disappointing one, which is a shame really, because it was directed uh, by the daughter of David Lynch, Jennifer Lynch. So okay. great things were expected, but, mm-hmm. uh, what was but no, not really. I think it even won a Razzie as well at the time. Uh, but that that that's the film for me that I think more disappointed me. More, oh, I thought there might be something more to it. Mm. What about you, Phil? What what film? What in, indie film for you is? Has not uh, raised its standards to the height you would have liked. There's a film I actually really like on the whole, but th- there is problems with the script that I think mm. uh, let it down, uh, and that's the Stanford Prison Experiment from 2015, which yeah. was uh, directed by Carl Patrick Alvarez. Uh, it's based on the real life uh, experiment that was carried out at Stanford University by um, Philip Zimbardo, I think, in the early 70s. Have you heard of. Uh... I've, I've heard of the experiment, yes. So the experiment itself. Uh, he got together a group of young men who agreed to be part of this experiment for a two to three week period uh, and he basically split them into guards and prisoners and um, it didn't take any time at all for the guards to sort of really take on this really authoritarian approach uh, to their role and sort of pretty much straight away began to sort of essentially torture and humiliate the prisoners in turn the, the prisoners had this sort of victim mentality and became very submissive um, and just sort of assumed this was supposed to be happening to them until it got to the point where they you know got to breaking point um, and they revolted and the experiment had to be ended early Um, and so there's been a couple of uh, films made that are loosely based on the experiment one from the early 2000s Das Experiment which is a German film and then there was an American remake of that film in 2010 with Adrian Brody and Forrest Whitaker wasn't as good like I said they were loosely based on this experiment um, in those film versions they take it a bit far people getting murdered and you know the humiliation is kind of really over the top um, so this 2015 film is based really closely on the experiment itself and like I said I do really like the film it's got a great cast uh, the acting's amazing that's one of the best things about it um, and on the whole the script is quite funny and harrowing but where it lets itself down is it sticks far too close to the actual events. Oh. It goes beat for beat. What happened in the actual events happened in the film. And you know how when people adapt books or yeah. um, make films on real life events, there's always people criticising them for, yeah. for deviating too far away. Um, this is certainly a case where they definitely should have taken a few artistic <laughs> licences, I think. You don't really get a sense of this heightening tension 
and when it all sort of collapses it's over a very minor event which you can imagine happening in real life because it's the case of the straw breaking the camel's back yes within a sort of a three-act film over a two-hour period you need a sort of escalating yeah. heightening sense of uh, things going awry so that's one of the things that just doesn't work for this film yeah. it, it should have mixed up the order of events possibly and had the more extreme things happening be the last bits of humiliation that really kind of wound so people up, up. To the absolutely the other thing which i find really really strange that they've done with this film is you're introduced to philip zimbardo he's the the guy running the experiment and he yeah. sort of he observes this via video and then you've got your guards and you've got your prisoners, there's probably maybe 12 on each side, so obviously you're not going to get introduced to every single one of those guys. So you get introduced to, say, about three of the, the guards, the three main guards, and there's, in the beginning there's two main prisoners, and they're played by, you know, Ezra Miller, he's the new Flash in the DC, in the yeah. DC films. Yeah. Um, from the indie world, he came from a, a film called After School, and his breakthrough role was We Need to Talk About Kevin. The other prisoner played by Ty Sheridan who he got his indie break in a film called Mud with um, Matthew McConaughey yeah, but no most recently we know him from um, Ready Player One he's Wade Watts yeah. and those two guys are great yeah they're great in the film um, and those are really the only two prisoners that you're introduced to and for some bizarre reason they both leave halfway through the film so about 50 minutes into the film, okay. Ezra Miller's character leaves. Right. 10 minutes later, Ty Sheridan's character leaves. So you've lost um, your two main protagonists. I don't understand why they didn't have a third prisoner okay. who, could, who we could have followed all the way through. Yeah. Or just make one of the two who left a minor character. Um, you know, normally you'd have a, a main character, wouldn't you, who you'd follow through this yeah, ordeal. Yeah. You, but you, you need don't... somebody to for the audience to tag on to, yeah. really. And there's another hour of the film where you don't have a, a main character to follow or root for, and it really, really screws the film. And they do kind of bring in a new prisoner to replace them, but you know, you're too far into the film to care about this guy, and you don't know the other prisoners enough to care about them. So I just found it really odd. Yeah, it's a bit strange to say the least, but you, but, it's, but it's still a film you, you recommend seeing for different reasons. Yeah, for the... For the performances alone, yeah. I definitely recommend it, yeah. Okay, so it's a film uh, worth checking out. Mm -hmm. And maybe we should do that, maybe we should do that more in the future, yeah. come up with uh, mm -hmm. uh, several recommendations for, for other films to watch. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for, for the sake of this episode, yeah. uh, what recommendations do you uh, suggest? Um, well, we, I mentioned him before, Mike Henry, yeah. who made um, I Work for 500 quid. Um, I don't think that's available, but on his website, yeah. uh, which I think is quandaryproductions.com, he's got three of his feature films, which yeah. made them on a very low budget. Um, they're free to view. So oh, Excellent. Yeah, so if you want to head over to his website, check out what he's, he does. Um, he's, he did, I think, four features in five years. <laughs> which, wow. Yeah. Okay, I think that's, uh, that's covered everything in this yeah, podcast. So next episode, we're going to talk about the pre-production for yeah. Worst Enemy, how the casting went. Um, we'll cover more on that. We covered a little bit about mm -hmm. Matt Waters, but we'll cover other aspects as well. Uh, location hunting, uh, uh, <laughs> finding the props and mm -hmm. uh, set that we needed, uh, which involved uh, road trips, uh, epic road trips, and all sorts. Um, 
and that will lead us on to casting in other movies. Yeah. Uh, good castings, mm -hmm. uh, castings that never happened were due to. Yeah. A bit like the Kim Basinger one for yeah. Boxing Helena, and uh, obviously bad casting, yeah. <laughs> where some people just didn't fit, just name any Steven Seagal film. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> But get in touch with us. We'd love to hear your recommendations for films as well, things yeah. that, and and other things you'd like us to cover, uh, whether it be stuff to cover about own worst enemy in uh, the conception that we didn't cover this episode, or stuff you'd like us to cover in the future, regarding scripts or the production itself. Um, the best places to get in touch with us are on our website, which is ownworstenemymovie.com, mm -hmm. on Twitter. Which is under Own Worst Enemy UK. The Instagram page, which is Filmmaker, that's P H I L M underscore M A K E R. And our Facebook page, put in a search for Own Worst Enemy Movie, and you'll find us that way as well. Yep. Let so, us know what we're doing as well. Yeah, let us know about the podcast. Yeah. Feedback for the podcast is very important. Uh, Things that you think we babble on too much about, and things you'd love to us for us to include in the future. So that is a big thank you to everyone out there, and this is a goodbye from me, Mike. Yes, thank you very much. And that is a goodbye from Phil. Thank you very much.